Talks at Afters, where you get access and insights from some of the best in the business. Here at Afters, we are on the land of the Gadigal and the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. And I would like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the extraordinarily rich 60,000 years of continuous culture that we are so fortunate to have here in Australia. Hello, I'm Nell Greenwood, CEO of Afters. And this is the place where you can find insights from some of the leading creatives in our industry. Directors, producers, podcasters, cinematographers, sound designers, screenwriters, radio makers, and more. All talking about how to make great work in complex times. Welcome to Talks at Afters. I I, I really wanted people to think about what was happening in terms of coral reefs and ocean acidification and climate change. And that work went in front of, was, was opening 25 planetariums around the world during one week. But I didn't know at the end of it whether anyone in those audiences had a change of mind. Because I thought afterwards, having attended a lot of those, maybe everyone in those audiences already felt the way I do about coral reefs. But when that work was at the World Economic Forum and it's in front of people who run the world's biggest oil and gas companies, and they emerge emotionally affected by it and begin to have conversations about ocean acidification and climate change, then something has the potential to shift. So that for me became not just interesting, but um, essential. In this episode of Talks at Afters, I am in conversation with the brilliant Lynette Woolworth. Lynette is Afters' very first artist in residence. She is a groundbreaking artist and filmmaker who works across platforms, making extraordinary and innovative use of technologies to reflect on what it means to be human. Her stories reflect on the deep connections between people and nature and extraordinary stories of grace and transcendence. Lynette's most recent VR works, Collisions and Our Vena, were developed at the invitation of and in partnership with Indigenous communities. Lynette has won two Emmys. She has been awarded a UNESCO City of Film Award Actors Byron Kennedy Award for Innovation and Excellence. In 2016, she was named by Foreign Policy magazine as one of the year's 100 leading global thinkers. And in 2020, she was one of the recipients of the World Economic Forum's Crystal Awards. So having given you that introduction, and I think sometimes it can be a bit, you know, the focus then is on awards and achievement. I'd like to peel back a bit and have a bit more of the human story of how you got here. <laughs> what brought you here, Lynette? Um, I, went to, I went to art school. Actually, I, uh, I, I've always loved writing. I love story. To be honest, if I had known how to be a writer, I probably would have studied writing. But I didn't know a pathway, so, but I could always paint. And I, uh, so I went to art school. And the really great thing about going to art school, I think, is that um, one of the things about it is that you're really encouraged to not be like anyone else. So, I mean, it's a sort of a strange thing to say, but one of the greatest imperatives <laughs> about the experience of going to art school is, is, is you're, you're pushed to find your own creative vision. And funnily enough, even though there's such a kind of strong um, art history, so much of the process is to be not like someone else. 
Um, and I think it's a really, really great training because it pushes you all of the time internally. I mean, continually asking yourself, what is your own practice? What is your own work? Even if no one can make sense of what you're doing. And so I studied painting for three years. I did painting. Um, and then I did a postgraduate in photography. And again, because it was at an art school, um, same questions. Like, what are you, what, what are you doing that is not like anyone else? And to be honest, like my photography, one of my photography supervisors really disliked my work. I mean, he really did not like what I was doing, but that didn't matter because, because uh, it had already been instilled in me that my work as an artist was to find my own visual language. And so I was sort of, sort of encouraged to do that. And in my postgraduate exhibition, I did what I would say, I made the first leap, which, which led me to where I am now in that I stopped, I stopped putting things on the wall. I, I actually realized, so I went from painting to photography to installation. So my postgraduate exhibition was an installation. You had to walk into a space, there were physical objects. And, um, and I had realized by that time that I, that I wanted a relationship with the audience that wasn't just someone looking at something that I had done, as in this kind of parallel space, this person viewing from this distance, this thing that I was placing over here. I was looking for some engagement with the audience. And once I worked that out, I started shifting my practice. And so that has led me towards any technology that can help me create um, a space where the audience became a participant in the work. And, and that really has led me to, to where I am. Fantastic. It's such an interesting, I think, so many interesting things in there. I think it's so interesting then, I think, in terms of that idea of audience. And I think sometimes that we can get caught up in the idea of audience as market, and that can feel a bit sort of peculiar in the creative process. But I think the way that you're describing it as audience, as kind of participant, yeah. um, is such a really useful way for students to understand it. And in particular in terms of the idea of you having that process of really understanding who you are as a, as a point of difference. Yeah. No one needs to diminish that relationship with audience. Yeah. I mean, and that makes sense if you think about it like that, because then if you think about relationship with audience, it needs to be, it kind of emulates relationship with anyone in that unless it's particular, it has no meaning. Mm-hmm. So if I'm doing something that's like everyone else, I can't have a unique relationship with an audience. Um, but if an audience comes to know me because I'm particular, then that is a, that can be a true relationship. And so I was always searching for, I was always searching for that. And again, uh, I would say the training in art is helpful because it's so anti-market. I mean, in fact, we don't even often know what a market is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what it does is sort of hone your focus on um, just completing the work without even necessarily knowing how many, how big that audience might be. Mm. And if you can imagine, I mean, this might sound strange, but if you can imagine if you're making an artwork, mm. often you might be making an artwork. You think of people are making an artwork for a collector. So your audience might be one person. So, so that's a thing. I think the dynamic, it just instilled a different priorities in my mind. And I became very obsessed with my relationship with the audience and finding them. And so not, not that I was changing the work to suit them, but I was imagining them always when I was creating the work. And sometimes that audience has ended up being 
uh, a group of world leaders in a particular location, but I'm picturing them having the experience as I'm making the work. Gosh, that's so fascinating. Um, can I ask you just a bit more about that process, Lynette, in terms of just considering your range of work? Yeah. Obviously, it's, it, immersive video is your primary medium, but obviously you made tender as a documentary. Yes. Talk a bit about, I suppose, your development of ideas in terms of a bit of an extension of that. And I think considering audience, but also considering form and yeah. how that relates to audience. Well, I'm really sort of story driven. So I'll go first for what is this? Well, let's say the story. And even though maybe it's not story as many people might think of it, because for me, an interactive installation, there's still a story held in there. As in, there's a narrative that I'm playing out, even if maybe no one's speaking Mm. or nothing's being said. But I am trying again to imagine those decisions will be driven by, um, again, audience. So, for example, well, story and audience. So where, what, what is the most perfect compatible form for this story? So mm-hmm. Collisions is a really good example of that, perhaps, and Tender's another one. With Collisions, I heard Nieri's story, which if you don't know, this work is a story of... Um, a Madu elder, Indigenous man, first contact generation man uh, from the Pilbara in Western Australia, who saw in the 1950s one of Britain's atomic tests as he was moving through the South Australian desert. He had held this story um, close since that time. Um, it wasn't a story that happened in his own country. It happened in um, this in the country in South Australia, in the Maralinga lands. But he wanted to share it with world leaders. I was invited to his community by, uh, by the Madu women painters, met Neri and heard this story and he told me he wanted to share it. So it was a year or so before I could work out the form, the best form. And originally I imagined the work as an interactive installation, but that was because I hadn't seen VR yet, as in live action VR and the capacity to shoot with a camera. And the moment in 360, the moment I saw VR, I realised that that was the form that Neri's story needed. So often I will wait until I can find the right form for that story world. So with Tender, for example, it's a story of a little group, as Nell said, in Port Kembla, who basically want to disrupt the, the monolith that runs a lot of the funeral industry in Australia. So at once it's a story of, that's happening in a little community, but the secondary intent for the work was that a document would be created that be, could be shared across Australia because everyone at some point faces this challenge of dealing with the funeral industry. And so where is the audience for that? One, the form needed to be one where their storytelling could be most accessible. So I turned towards broadcast and developed a partnership with ABC and that work was broadcast as well as going through film festivals. So my my decision-making is around a marriage, really. What's the perfect marriage? Um, Where's the story gonna fulfill itself? And where will the audience the particular audience that I think most needs that story, how are they going to best access it? Mm, So interesting. What was interesting is actually part of the the conversation we had before this is that we discussed the fact that you'd never actually made a work of fiction. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Has all been um, working with people. And I guess in terms of that idea of, you know, your beginning through art school and that understanding of your own point of view, 
Could you talk to us a bit about how that process works when you're dealing so closely and intimately with subjects? And I think one thing that's very clear from your work is your respect for that, the person whose stories you're telling as kind of co-partners in that story. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of the time I, or there's already an existing relationship or, um, but all of my work is based on, I would say, real relationship. And so that's possibly why I'm not interested in fiction <laughs> because I would, I would struggle to m manage to do what I do with actors as in the p people that are in my work, even in the installations, um, they're not acting something, they're showing something. And so that had always been my process. So um, I did a work um, for ACME many, many years ago, um, which was called Invisible by Night, which was, was about a grieving woman who appeared, this interactive installation, which was at Federation Square, and she appeared every night and she was there till the morning. It was at the site of Melbourne's first morgue, which is actually on, on part of Federation Square. And I made the work because I'd met a woman who was grieving on a tram. And that prompted me to try and express what we had talked about in this work. But the person who appears in that work is a very dear friend of mine who had lost her partner very suddenly. So even when trying to put those pieces together, generally what is in my work comes from the, the relationship, but relationship that is also connected to, these, to, to, to real story. So I generally, I generally um, kind of imagined what my work would be and then, and then would go about finding, okay, how, how do I do this? How do, I, how do I create this? How do I respond? With the work with Indigenous communities, that has happened from invitation. So mm -hmm. very specifically from the Madhu people and then from the Yawanawa people. And because that wasn't traditionally how I did my work, when the first invitation came from the Madhu people, um, I, I actually said no to that invitation a few times because I wasn't sure that I could create, I had the time and the time that was being offered to me to create true relationship. Mm. I mean, because that sits at the heart of my work, I wasn't sure that I could make it work. But in a way, but interestingly, the Madhu people had curated me and were very insistent that I come and um, and actually responding to my uh, uncertainty, mm. just said, look, just come, just come and um, we'll go on a hunting trip. Mm. And that led, actually, they were right. It was a good connection and that led to three works. Mm. Um, so a first installation, a second installation for the Adelaide Biennial and then the um, Collisions work with Neri's story. And in fact, I was just, you know, recording conversations with community members just this week at Bungal for a podcast that I'm doing. So that relationship is ongoing. Um, when Tashka, who's the chief of the Yawanawa from the Amazon community, saw collisions, actually, Tashka and I had met a couple of times in Oxford, England at this gathering that Jeff Skoll has every year called the Skoll Forum for Social Entrepreneurs, where he, Jeff Skoll, you know, from Participant Media, he has this like two passions. One of them is film and the second one is social entrepreneurs. He's got a very interesting combination, but very beneficial for me because they're two, two interests that like overlap for me as well. And so I've been to Oxford where, where he will every year bring social entrepreneurs and often the people they're working with. And so I met Tashka, the chief of the Yawanawa there. He watched Collisions, the story of Neri. Um, and he 
took his headset off and he was very clear. So the Yawanawa people practice visioning um, using the ayahuasca as their technology, basically, for achieving visions. And he said, okay, I get this VR. It works like medicine. It opens a portal. It carries you without your body to a place you've never been. It intensifies colour and sound. You can meet the elders. You are given a message and then you are returned to reality. We can use this. You're going to have to come to the Amazon. So again, it was a, it was, it was a very specific invitation around uh, a story that the Yawanawa wished to send out in this particular technology. Um, but we continue also to work together. So I don't make a lot of work, but the core of the work is often, uh, I would say, a really long-standing relationship. And I guess as the process unfolds, Lynette, what level of kind of collaboration and consultation is happening as the work is developing and unfolding? With the, with, with, with the, the Yawanara, if, uh, so maybe the Aravena, for example, how would that work? Well, uh, we did it. So you can imagine a lot, a lot, a lot of planning. And actually, because I have had a lot of support from Sundance um, mm. to make the virtual reality, was had a residency for both of those works, Sundance, paid for Tashka and his wife to travel to the Sundance Resort so we could have time together to plan this work. Um, so we had a lot of planning time and I had to understand essentially what they wanted the work to convey. And there were like two strong, uh, the, the core impulses of the work. I said, what essentially do we have to show? They said, one, that everything is alive. Mm-hmm. And two, that the forest is aware of you. Now, that means I can take the technology, if you can imagine the, te- the technology that allows um, me to, to track your gaze mm-hmm. or to impact the world via your breath and transfer that concept into the technology. But I can't do anything without checking first. So it's a lot of calls backwards and forwards, usually using WhatsApp. Um, to ask specific questions, like, for example, we did volumetric capture of the grandmother tree in the community. And the volumetric capture meant it was possible for me to move you as a participant inside the tree. Now, this is the most important tree in the community. I have no idea whether or not that's allowable. I only know it's possible. So then I, you know, I have to call and speak to Tashka and Hushahu, the shaman, and show them that and tell them it's possible and ask them if it's what we should do. And so um, it's, it's a continual flow of communication, but it ran both ways. So because, you know, when you work with new technology, a lot of the time things, every, all of these things are possible when you start and then as you're going along, you hit these walls and something that should have been really possible to do becomes just impossible. And someone will say, no, that thing that you were planning on doing, I'm sorry, that's not going to work. And it's like being in a maze with new technologies, like being in a maze. So, and then you hit something and you have to be able to leap. You can't just turn. You've got to go, you've got to let your mind leap. And so a lot of the time, even though I was at Technicolor and I was surrounded by all these levels of support, the time frame of doing a Wavana was incredibly tight and it was huge pressure and a lot of, and that pressure was just on my shoulders most, just generally. And so sometimes I go home really late at night and I call Tashka and I say, you know, nothing's wrong, but it's really hard. 
And he would say, you know, my friend, don't worry. And then I get a message back by the morning. The shamans are in ceremony for you. And I could go into Technicolor the next day and tell, you know, the person who's doing the modeling and the person who's doing the animation and the person who's, who's, who's doing the coding. And I would tell them, um, the shamans are in ceremony. We are going to be okay. And actually it did feel like that, but it was a, because of a continual flow between the two, which, you know, maybe some people would call it time consuming. And certainly I know in terms of where I was in Technicolor in LA, Culver City, it was not, my process was not the norm. But, but if you stand for that, and if you say, this is what we're doing, then it's interesting how, how people quickly change and quickly find that normal to be, um, a great way of working. I think that's just so that rich uh, information there, and so important for us to keep in mind. I love that I, that really important confluence of tech and yeah. also deep spiritual, sort of almost cosmological imperative in storytelling, and how how you've managed to align them both. But I mean, I think it's often been spoken about that you are, you know, a true pioneer in terms of tech. Could you talk a bit more about that? And I think it's something that we've spoken about, I guess, in terms of the challenges of being in that tech space and to be, you know, candid as a woman as well in that tech space. So could you speak a bit more, I suppose, about that and and how you've kept going with such kind of remarkable determination and vision through those obstacles? Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, technology, I guess it's, again, the training in art, I think, um, because in the training in the history of art, you have this awareness if you go from painting, you know, on cave painting to oil painting, which was a technological innovation, um, to photography, which was a technological innovation, these forms of technological innovation, which have always happened and have always often have these huge kind of problems. And I, I always reference Leonardo's Last Supper um, mm. because, you know, he, he worked with a new technology and it messed up. You know, the, the ground for the Last Supper did not, was not compatible with the paint that he was working on for the Last Supper. And from the moment the Last Supper was fish, finished, it had to begin to be being repaired because the technology had not worked out the technology. And so what I have always been aware of is that the technology is the servant to the work. Mm. Um, it's not the work itself. And it's an innovation that it's in, and that's the lineage that I'm interested in, the lineage of continuing to innovate with the technology that appears in the moment that I happen to be living in, Mm. um, which should just always be a servant to the same thing, which is to the story. So for me, um, VR is just, it's just an evolution on from Mm. oil painting. It's just that it happens to be the one that I can get my hands on in, in this period that I'm living in, which allows for innovation. Um, it's tricky because technology in terms of VR is so, I mean, and where I was exposed to it at first, you know, through Palo Alto and these VR companies. And, you know, I'd walk into rooms. I had my first residency with Jaunt VR. I'd walk into a room which was like, you know, dude upon dude upon dude upon dude upon dude, like it's just a sea of dudes and um, a sea of white dudes and they were all of a particular age. And honestly, it was very challenging. But I also, I find with the people I'm working with, I again search for um, 
relationship and I'm very particular about not hiding my intent. So I'm very upfront about the way I'm going to work. And that means that people who are not interested in that fall away very quickly. But it also means that people who are interested in that approach, um, you see them, you know, they appear. Um, it's challenging and it's now it's not a problem for me. Early on, it was a problem for me. I used to see in people's eyes, you know, I used to see in people's eyes, I was working with an expectation thinking that I was going to stop at some point I was going to stop that I was kind of pushing on that technology. And I could see this look in people's eyes. I started to clock it where I go, Oh, now they're going, Oh, right. Okay. She's not going to stop. This is, this is it. We, we're going to have to keep improving. And, and it meant that I then found the people I could work with and I would just keep working with them. And so that's the other thing, again, to come back to, you know, what I love, to be honest, about an, uh, a film school now is that you find the people you could work with for decades and, you know, you would, you would find those people who, whose kind of heart beats at the same rhythm as yours and, and then you can make work together and you should make work together. And, and that part of being at an art school is to find your people and, and to find the people who kind of philosophically and ethically you match with, and then you can keep pushing. And, and I guess, and that's what I do. What a beautiful way to put it about the hearts, finding who's, whose hearts uh, beating the same rhythm as yours. It's a beautiful way of, of looking at collaboration. I'm just thinking, Dave, that could be a new marking sort of criteria for the rubrics. Then, <laughs> <laughs> um, if I could just ask as well about in terms of, so you've obviously done this extraordinary work in, in VR and really expanded that as a kind of really powerful medium, but, but where next? Where, where is your curiosity and your interest lying? So I'm right now working on a podcast series. I'm only because I'm at a time where I want to pause and be able to reveal some of the conversations that have sat underneath the work that isn't evident in the work necessarily. But I think that it's a good time to talk about those conversations. I'm, I'm learning to use a different technology so that I can um, go towards that. But I also want to be useful with what... I can do so. I'm also working on a project with the palliative care unit in St Vincent's Hospital and hopefully here in Sydney, which is just to bring uh, VR in as an aid for people who are dying alone or dying without family with them and to create virtual presence in hospitals. And that's not an artwork at all, but it's just something I can wrangle because I know the technology and can kind of quickly activate around where it can be useful. Awavana, we're in discussions about becoming uh, a feature animation. And those negotiations have been very long and protracted with a streaming service. But you know what? Part of that is also fascinating and time, even, even though it's a lot of time, it's, it's, it's a valuable part of the process because it's about pushing back again on how you enter a relationship with a streaming service with content that belongs to the Yawanawa. So I guess there's a lot of things I'm doing that are taking time, but aren't evidenced in work. Nevertheless, um, they feel, it kind of feels fr fruitful and, um, and interesting. And I, I just, that project I think you're doing with the palliative care unit is such an extraordinary thing. And again, I think comes back to that kind of underlying theme of your work about tech being actually an incredibly humanizing device. Yeah doesn't it's still at our it's an instrument that we can use to connect and to improve and strengthen 
rather than we could feel a bit sort of distanced and mechanistic and, and isolating. Yeah, I know. People always say that about um, technology and VR technology. I've never, I mean, for me, it's extremely intimate. Uh, mm -hmm. Virtuality is far more intimate than traditional kind of film form, only because you're now inside the work. So it's like a natural uh, development on from where I hoped to be when I wanted the audience to be participants. And that's an interesting thing. I discussed this with Jeff Skoll, um, virtual reality, because he invested in one of the companies that was supporting my work. And he said the same thing to me. He said he called his company participant media because he was imagining the same thing. Mm. He wanted the audience to be participants. So not that it has to happen in that way. And certainly, um, you can cause pull people into film in all sorts of ways, but but the technology is really tremendously powerful, and and it's really just down to who is using it, which is why I'm very passionate about access to the technology, so that it isn't just the same sort of people developing the content for it. That's why the invitation from the Yawanel was so exciting to me, uh, because they saw a use for the technology that it hadn't been built for. Yeah, and so, so fascinating and interesting. And then if I could also ask you, obviously, the question of the hour is, um, we are obviously in very strange, complicated times. Yeah. So I guess, how has your practice and uh, been impacted by COVID? And how do you think, I suppose, COVID has impacted the arts in general? I mean, it's really terrible for physical presence and, you know, exhibition and presentation, that's for sure. I think it's really beneficial for immersive technologies for what virtual reality can do and what augmented reality can do, kind of those works. What is challenge? So for my practice, um, what's what shifted is that normally I spend so much time travelling and, of course, that's, that's changed. But then we have this capacity to connect with one another anyway. I think that we'll slowly see a more interesting, careful utilisation of immersive technologies. And that will only come when the, there's more access. And access is really a problem, just even in terms of who has headsets. And I don't know how that is solved because cost is a huge impediment. Not necessarily for us generally here, but for if you're in Brazil, if you're in India, if you're in Africa, South Africa, it's enormously expensive to access those technologies. And so a, a lot of my work behind the scenes is trying to use the people I know in the position that I'm in. I'm on a council for the World Economic Forum about um, augmented and virtual reality is to try, to try and help to push technology companies towards solving the problems about access because the tools are there. It's just who is holding them that matters. That's such a powerful I guess, I get idea again to think about in terms of access, like you say. Yeah. Um, and the idea of, I guess, authorship all the way to, but the other side of it is when you make work, which is so, you know, about audience and participating, giving, you know, the audience those mechanisms to participate as well is obviously so critical, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's really, you know, it's probably not even that interesting to think about, but unfortunately, inside of a capitalist system, the issue of what someone has to pay to get access to, to have the tools to make the work really does matter. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
And so it's not an interesting thing to talk about, it's, but it's an essential thing to think about because why we're not seeing, um, like, well, well, there are works being done, but we're not seeing a flourishing of these works from some of those countries I just named is because it would cost, it costs you twice as much in um, South Africa or Brazil or India for a headset as the mm -hmm. amount you would pay in the US because of import taxes. So we are looking at a system that has actually um, supported the content to be made and produced in those countries that already have, you know, um, far greater access anyway. So I think there's, there's things within this overarching system that are impacting what we're seeing and knowing in terms of this content and how we overcome that, I don't know. But again, I'm really interested in uh, film school because of the possibility of creating partnerships and residencies and opportunity for people to get access that they might not otherwise. And then, you know, the tools for making these stories with these technologies should not be held in the hands of the people who originally had the capacity to, and, the, and the wealth to create them. What's extraordinary is that you are in conversation and dialogue with people who are making you know, very serious and, and important decisions you know, at the World Economic Forum and, and Davos. Could you just share us, I guess, a, a glimpse of what it's like to be in conversation with those people and also just your level of hope and optimism about how those conversations are progressing and the impact they will have? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I, I, you know, I had very stereotypical views of that particular audience before I went there and I had to learn to um, be very authentically myself and, and not be phased or change myself in any way in order to have a conversation with with people who were um, had their hands on the levers of power and uh, had potential to change things. I can say that I've had extraordinary conversations and often they're very private and maybe mm. they'll never be seen by anyone, but they really are by a person who should that person, should I be able to change that person's mind with that work? Things will change. And what is fascinating is that works of emotion, I am going to say, work powerfully, sometimes more powerfully with people who are surrounded by people who give them information, knowledge, um, mm. statistics, and often affirming with information something that they already know or have to make a decision on. It's like coming at them with something that is, um, that's not in the normal realm of experience around the thing that they're thinking about. It's like you can open a different pathway and that leads to to a different decision I've personally experienced that and I and so for me it became not just an interesting audience to have but uh, an audience I became um, intent on building a relationship with and intent on opening the door behind keeping the door open behind me to bring other artists through who have the same intention I do because if you have an intention in your work and maybe like with Coral I, I, I really wanted people to think about what was happening in terms of coral reefs and ocean acidification and climate change. And that work went in front of, was, was opening 25 planetariums around the world during one week. But I didn't know at the end of it whether anyone in those audiences had a change of mind. Because I thought afterwards, having attended a lot of those, maybe everyone in those audiences already felt the way I do about coral reefs. But when that work was at the World Economic Forum and it's in front of people who run the world's biggest oil and gas companies, 
and they emerge emotionally affected by it and begin to have conversations about ocean acidification and climate change, then something has the potential to shift. So that for me became not just interesting, but um, essential. Incredible. So David, I'm going to have a questions. <laughs> That's a, 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 just sort of getting my head about around that sort of way of thinking about the impact of your work. Um, but we have many questions. What do you get back from the audience relationship? Because you, you talked about you wanting to have a relationship with uh, the audience. That's what drove you away from, from paintings. Yes. And, and did that thing that you get back um, drive the, the, the change in your work between Collision and Awavana? Uh, no, I don't think it changed the relationship. The change, it made a change between Collisions and Awavana. I think it made the change all those years ago when I talked about that long and it has continued to develop that relationship. I, I would say, um, you, you know, if you're like driven, uh, I'm, I'm kind of probably driven by immersive docu immersive documentary intent is probably closest to, to where I come from. And, and like a lot of documentary filmmakers, I'm trying to create change. Um, and so um, what, the benefit to the relationship with the audience is the potential to see that in action. Um, and and I'm very uh, and and that that is extremely motivating. <laughs> it's really you know it's really motivating to ha to have a, a, a challenging to see someone's eyes opened up to something because they've been inside of work. Um, mm -hmm. um, it, I mean it's ex it's extremely satisfying, uh, and, and sometimes that audience with that one person. But if that one person is a person who can make a change about whether there should be. A, a uranium mine or not that that's that's a really significant conversation to be having and um and there's nothing honestly there's there's it's it's far more satisfying to me than a large group of people who are generally enjoying a work great because i'm purpose driven i guess <laughs> that's good purpose driven i think that's something we should all reconnect with what is the purpose driving us to that work. Okay, next up, we've got a question from Angus. Angus, will you ask the question? Um, my question relates to um, what what you were talking about, making that, that work in the Amazon and the idea of the volumetric mapping of the tree and going into the tree. And it made me think of the film Avatar. And I was wondering if you had any uh, insights or notion on how James Cameron got to the idea of using that the tree in Avatar um, and whether it's actually been kind of taken or appropriated from those people's culture, whether he had permission and what led there. If you have any insight, I'd be very interested. I can tell you that I know James Cameron has been in touch um, for the recent work with um, different Brazilian Amazonian tribes. I don't know what he did for Avatar. I don't know his process for the, for the first Avatar, but I know for the second process that he was contacting Indigenous Amazonian tribes. And it was apparent to me, um, for example, in Avatar 1, that he was very aware of fluorescence, for example, coral fluorescence. There was like, look, there were things in there that I could see. I don't know. I don't know anything about his process for that first work, but I know for the second one, he was seeking to have conversation with, um, with Indigenous peoples. I... I don't, I can't comment on what his process would be and I don't know how he would, what, what agreements he would make with people. I can tell you that it's, I have found it very difficult to push for what I think are very reasonable rights and acknowledgements 
um, in the world of um, Hollywood around those uh, intellectual and cultural properties of Indigenous people, not just myself, but but with the but the lawyer who is who is arguing for those rights for the hour and hour. So I would say it's an unknown, and it would be a really interesting question to find out one day what his process is. Thank you, and if it's a legitimate representation too of their cultural um, values and, or beliefs. And whose culture? I mean, I don't know that we yeah. know whose culture and which culture. And the thing is. And perhaps we don't, and I don't know whether he's doing a sort of sieving and, and has the ability to kind of call in a whole lot of knowledge but isn't specifically acknowledging. I don't know. As I say, I really don't know his, his process. It, it would be really interesting to find out. I'm going to ask a question that's been asked in the chat feed. Um, yeah. uh, can you talk through the machinations of how you managed to get your work seen by such powerful decision makers? What was the chain of events that led you to be in those places that then led to other things? Is it serendipity? Is it, um, uh, you know, bribery? Oh, no. oh. Yeah. Um, so really came from the Coral Full Dome work. And as I said, I build uh, long-standing relationships, even with presenters. And I have a long uh, relationship with the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and they'd shown my work previously. So when I made the Coral when I was making the full dome film, um, they were one of the people I went to first to see about their interest in presenting it in 2012 when I was going to release the work. And at that presentation, happened to be in the audience. I've worked with the same scientists. I, I'm so repetitive. As I say, I work with people, I, I'm relationship focused. I've worked with the same biologist um, I've worked with since 2001. She, uh, she worked, so she came to the Amazon with me. She worked with me on Coral. She worked with installations I did in 2001 and 2007. And she invited someone to this presentation at the American Museum of Natural History. Um, who's a marine biologist, he couldn't come and he sent his son-in-law. His son-in-law was then in New York, but was shortly going to take up a new job, which was the cultural director at the World Economic Forum. And he saw Coral, the full dome work. And when he went to the World Economic Forum and was heading this cultural program, he thought he would try and bring in work, which wasn't just, um, you know, uh, a diversion from the subject matter. Um, that people were discussing at Davos, but was in line with what people were discussing. And so Coral was a perfect example. It was a very immersive work. It didn't tell you anything, but was absolutely driven by a comprehension of what was happening because of climate change. And so the dome didn't fit in Davos. He brought the work to the, to the World Economic Forum summer event, which is in China, it was in Tianjin. And it had such a huge, huge impact, which was of great surprise, both to me and the World Economic Forum, that then they invited me to bring another work to Davos. And so I took another existing work to Davos. And again, it had this very surprising effect. And so then they said to me, could you make us a work? Now, knowing this audience, could you bring a work that you've made with this audience in mind, given that the two previous works they'd seen were existing works. So what they were noticing, though, was that this form of immersive work 
could be very provocative and very powerful and even on the most influential people. And so it, it really cemented our relationship. And so my relationship with them has continued. And because of a work like Collisions, um, first then showing at the World Economic Forum, so Collisions premiered at the World Economic Forum and Sundance in the same week, um, then it opens a whole lot of doors Sundance opens doors to a whole lot of film, film festivals, but the World Economic Forum opened the doors that I was really interested in to, you know, private meetings at the UN or, you know, climate summits or at weapons um, discussions. It opened a whole lot of doors that are very different doors, but which actually were the ones that I was most um, interested to go behind so again it's about a long-term relationship with an organization that I never imagined that I would have a relationship with but getting there seeing that I was aligned it was aligned with my intention and so um I continue to go there You've been listening to Talks at Afters, an Australian film, television and radio school podcast. Please subscribe for more episodes. For show notes and other resources, head to afters.edu.au. That's afters.edu.au.